Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. I'm really honored to be here with Darren. Um, before we dig into the questions, I have to, I have a confession to make. First of all, it took me forever to get dressed because I really wanted to look kind of like SJP, Sex in the City. And instead I look just Goldman-like except for the shoes. I think the shoes are kind of SJP. Shoes are good. So shoes are good. you've been inspiring me for many, many years in little, in little ways. So you got your first job in the industry just out of UCLA in an entertainment public relations firm. And it wasn't long before you got your first screenplay picked up for doing time on planet Earth about a teenager who thinks he may be an alien prince. Okay, that don't, don't rent that one. Okay, we won't. <laughs> not not 99% no. of on Rotten Tomatoes. I don't think it even made um, the tomato meter, so. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have tomato then. Yeah, like no, you actually no. had to just watch it and see if you yes. liked it, which there's something to be said for that, right? right. But that's a, yeah. that's a whole other story. We're not going down that rabbit hole. So that got the attention of Aaron Spelling. T talk a little bit about what you learned in the, those early days, you know, just out of school when you first met Aaron Spelling. Like, take us back, tell, tell us about that, and then tell us a little bit about how it, how it led to, to 90210. I was, um, I had sold a script when I was quite young, when I was like 24. Um, that, the, the screenplay to Doing Time on Planet Earth, which eventually got made at Canon Films. If anybody, anybody remember Canon Films, it was just sort of like the, the schlockiest studio in town. And, and from that point, I started writing screenplays, you know, and I wrote um, a lot of teenage-oriented films. And from, from sort of writing those, from, from being a screenwriter, I was approached by someone I'd worked with at a studio who went to become head of drama at Fox and asked me if I was interested in developing a TV series. I, I met with them, and I met with the executives at Fox, and I pitched them the idea of the show about high school which I thought had not ever been seen on television because at the time, all the TV shows about high school were, were very condescending and not very realistic. Mm -hmm. and, and movies, like at the time, the John Hughes movies were right. so popular and I loved those films and, and, and sort of, I loved this, this, the TV series I loved was 30-something, so I kind of said I wanted to do sort of like I loved 30 a 30-something for teenagers where, yeah. all the, where all these emotional issues about teenagers would, would you know, be what was most important, and that there would be exploring teenage sexuality and and drug use and all the things that were actually happening, but television wasn't able or hadn't hadn't like caught up with what was happening in the world. And they put me together with Aaron Spelling to produce it. So that's how I met. Um, oh, that's how I met Aaron. And so Fox put you together yes, with Aaron. Yes, Fox put together with Aaron. Can we talk a little bit about the, the characters? You don't have to go like you know too deep, but how did you develop them? How did you develop the storylines? And um, you 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 touched on this. Work back into the, you know how you thought about tackling those those controversial topics, really controversial at the time, from sex and sexual orientation to date rape, teen pregnancy, HIV. Like nobody was talking about that stuff. So like flesh out the show a little bit for us. Well, I I mean the topics were were just you know i i feel like television is always especially at that time it, it was very sanitized it was very behind and and i think especially as far as teenagers were concerned it hadn't really caught up to society mm -hmm. and it hadn't addressed any of those issues so it was really kind of like a 
a big canvas that hadn't been touched. Um, I really imagine my family, which was pretty suburban, moving to Beverly Hills. I had a, I, I, um, had a sister who's a year younger than me and just sort of imagined if we had kind of moved to Beverly Hills mm-hmm. um, with my, you know, and having gone to UCLA, I certainly was at school with a lot of those kids that grew up in Beverly Hills. Uh, there was a little bit of a little bit of cultural shock coming from the East Coast mm-hmm. to, to LA at that time, and and it just sort of you know grew from there. I thought about my high school experiences, and I think the idea was to make it as universal as possible in terms of thinking about the characters and just that sort of what high school felt like. And I was close enough to you know I was young enough that I could still remember it. Now I can't. Uh-huh. I would ne- you know I couldn't be the person to write that show today. But at the time, I was close enough. That's the one thing I could write. So 90210 had a lot of appeal. Obviously, it was uh, written um, with teenage characters and teenagers in mind. But, you know, I I know, I think I was in my 30s, right? And I love that show. And so... You were in your 20s. Yeah, I was in my 20s. Oh, yeah. That's Early the 20s. Right. Yeah. Early 20s. Actually, it might have been my teens, okay. but I felt like you I was in my 20s. You watched in high school. I know you did. Thank you. They said you were charming. Um, so, but then Melrose Place kind of took it to, to kind of the next place, the next stage in life, but in much the same way. It, tell me about, tell me about that, how you sort of came up with the idea for Melrose Place. You know, it was based on this apartment building where you were living in West Hollywood. Is that true or is that, you know, urban legend? And, you know, was, can you talk a little bit about yourself and your evolution from writing 902, you know, producing 90210 to Melrose Place and like where, where you were in life? Because at the time, of course, you were in your 20s as well. I would definitely. Well, I was just out of my 20s when I wrote Melrose Place, but I, um, I did live in, in my 20s, I lived in an apartment, courtyard apartment building with a pool in West Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that everyone that lived there was in their 20s and a little bit crazy because they were in their 20s and mm-hmm. we all had roommates and there was a pool and I always thought that sort of period of time between college and real adulthood mm-hmm. you know before you really had you know family and responsibilities and all that kind of stuff it was just a really interesting time to explore and and as a as a setting in a world that I hadn't you know that I hadn't quite seen and also something that I could relate to and, and write about my it, it my life was not as crazy as Melrose Place. Um, Come on, not uh, yeah, at all. Yeah. Well, I would say Just for the, give us a little. By the way, maybe for the first twelve episodes of Melrose Place, it was because those, <laughs> those, those were pretty dull. If you saw the the beginning of Melrose Place, sort of was modeled a little after Nine or Two and which is very earnest. Uh, and I don't we found out really quickly, like nobody really wanted to see sort of an earnest issue of the week story about a bunch of twenty-seven year old twenty-somethings. You just wanted to basically see them, like you know jump each other's bones and, and, and have a great time, right. which is what the show got on with pretty quickly and yep. became popular. Um, but not until then, you know. Um, what did, did you set out to accomplish something specifically, or is this more, you know, going back to, like, the theme in, in 90210 of sort of bringing things to light, the people, you know, you talked about TV being sanitized. Like, when, when, when you went to Melrose Place, were you like, okay, this is going to take us to the next level? Um, and, and how, as you, as you thought through episodes... How did you think about, you know, gee, we want to insert some kind of, um, you know, sort of like controversy. We want to talk about sex or we want to talk well, about... Yeah, Melrose Place kind of started with that conceit a little bit like 90210 and it really didn't work that well. And it wasn't really until the, um, I felt like the network was 
almost throwing up their hands and saying, just, you know, do whatever you want, um, that I felt like the leash got taken off and, and Melrose Place kind of became sort of an really over-the-top, um, outrageous soap. And part of that was that kind of storytelling for, for me was just, it was like, I just wanted to tell whatever stories I felt like people would, out of desperation, just not stop watching, mm -hmm. you know? And luckily, we got Heather Locklear, who came on the show, and I felt like gave me a lot of permission to be, to go to go out there a little bit into that sort of like, you know, Heather can't really say hello without, um, you know, without thinking that she has some sort of ulterior motive right. behind, <laughs> behind that. And so the minute she kind of came on the show, it just felt like we had this, juicy villain that we never really had on the show before. And it took the show in a different direction, made it for me just a lot more fun to write and to think about. And um, it's, she, her character really stirred things up. And the show went off into a different direction, a much soapier direction, which ironically changed the whole way, the whole storytelling on 90210. After Melrose Place became popular, 90210 became much more of a soap about the characters' ongoing stories and less of a, you know, issue-oriented show. You know, and it's funny, if you think about, you know, we, you call it a soap. I bet you there's a lot of young people in this audience don't even know what a soap you is. You know, I honestly, right? I never watched soaps. That's just what they called it. And I right. really never watched soaps, although I do remember I did watch Dynasty, and that was pretty fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And soaps were something that you kind of like, you know, at the time, you, you know, you just thought, I don't, you don't want anything to do with them. But I would just say every, really every, um, series now would be considered a Right, story. exactly. That's I mean, what I was going to say. Like, TV is now what you created. I mean... TV's like this. It's this sort of ongoing stories. Right. Like, you know, at the time that those shows began, there was this idea that you didn't want to tell an ongoing story because it was all about repeating episodes and the idea that you have repeatability and, and reruns. And what happened with Melrose Place is that the show became so popular as a, as a soap, as a continuous, you know, mm -hmm. people wanted to see what was going to happen next week and they never wanted a rerun. So we did 32 to 34 hours a year of Melrose Place. Wow, that's amazing. And we shot with two crews and shot two scripts like a week. It was, it was crazy. It must have been exhausting. It was exhausting. It was, I don't remember it actually. It's just um, a blur. But yes, I look at it, yes, every once in a while I'll, I'll see it on Netflix or something like that and I'll be like, oh my God, yes, I have a, some vague memory of having been around when that happened. One storyline you included in Melrose Place, there's a gay character, Matt Fielding, and supposedly there was a lot of pushback from the network around Matt's character. Um, you know, when you included Matt, were you, was it because you were an openly uh, gay person and why was that important and how did you navigate that pushback if, if we have well, that right? Well, first of all, I don't think, it, people at that time, you know, you know, going, thinking back to like 1994, weren't really talking about being, you know, first and foremost, your sexuality. You just weren't right. really talking about it. It was assumed or right. possibly, but I, it was very important to me to have a gay character in Melrose Place. And... I just felt like if you're doing a show that takes place in West Hollywood, you have to have a gay character. I wanted to have a gay character that was just not, that his sexuality wasn't an issue or really kind of a big part of who he was. Mm -hmm. It was like, we would tell his, his stories like we would tell everybody else's story. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, I think, uh, be, before Melrose Place, the gay characters on TV, it was like their, the, their sexuality was their issue. Right. And the story It was a problem. It was a problem. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And with and with Matt, it was like, you know, he was a social worker, he was gay, he got involved in um, you know, 
changing Kimberly's blood test at the hospital that has nothing to do with the fact that he was gay. You know right. what I mean? It was right. like, and he had dates with guys, and he dated somebody in the military, don't ask, don't tell, and he had censored kisses on the beach. And that was a problem, you know. The, and the, so they censored, because you couldn't watch, see two men kiss on TV then? No, no, they wouldn't, was yes. That? We'd film them, I would really basically say, you know what, I'm not gonna censor myself, we'll film it, and then if you guys choose to censor it, you have to And so they, you would film it and they would cut it? Yes, and ended up, at his best man who came in for the wedding, he saw in the courtyard, you know, through the lines of his apartment, Matt kissing his best man. Oh, I remember. And it was a big deal. We shot the kiss, and the big deal was going to be, were they going to air the kiss? Were they not going to air the kiss? I mean, the, the great thing about these sort of controversies is everybody knew that there was a kiss that then they didn't air, that right. they didn't air so then it, it created, a, you know, the controversy sort of came before the, the actual episode, so everybody knew they were watching the censored kiss when it right. aired. Let me ask you something. So you talk about this in like such a casual way, and we listened to it, and it's like, yeah, of course. Why were you so fearless? Because... I mean, still parts of Hollywood or people are still so fearful about being out. Not only were you fearless about being out, but you were fearless about, I'm going to put it on TV. I mean, you well, saying- I mean, you know, I thought it was ridiculous and it didn't feel like it was part of the culture that I was in or part of the world that I was in. It didn't feel like people were so, I mean, yes, people were certainly closeted, but it felt like there was a sensibility that, first of all, there was a sensibility that everybody who, did censor it, should have known better. Mm -hmm. Nobody wanted to be the person that said no. It was like, oh, it's all about the affiliates in the middle of the country. You know? Right. And, uh, you know, there, but in terms of doing it, it never felt anything but like kind of um, the right thing to do on the show and for the characters and in the world. And it's just sort of the same way that you went to a TV series about high school in the 1990s and say teenagers didn't have sex in high school. Right. You know, you went to a, a series about people living in their 20s in West Hollywood and say there are no gay characters. You just right. wouldn't. It would just be, it just would feel wrong. So it was obvious to you, although I'm not sure it would have been obvious to everybody. Um, so let's transition to Sex and the City. I know a lot of people are here um, really excited to hear you talk about that. That was appropriately on HBO, so no censors necessary. And it's obviously a very honest show about sex and women coming of age here in New York City. How did you develop those storylines and what did it mean to be on HBO back then? And then also talk a little bit about that transition from like, okay, you're in Hollywood with these, you know, young sort of a co-ed uh, uh, character list, and and then you, you go to Sex and the City, and although there are these tangential men, right. right? It was all about the women. So if you could if you could talk about that as well, that would be great. I got to know Candace Bushnell, who had started writing this column, Sex and the City. I loved. I love the column. I love the idea about a woman writing this column, and I knew Candace really well, and I just thought it would be, after having done 90210 and Melrose Place in Central Park West, I thought this would be a way to do something that was very, like, like almost like an independent film for television. Mm -hmm. And I brought it to HBO because HBO really had only, wasn't, wasn't doing a lot of series at that time. They were known for, like, the Larry Sanders show, which I really liked. But I just thought their criteria was just quality and and that it would be feel like more like a little film every week. And so really it was about going into it, it was about thinking about doing something like not commercial. Mm -hmm. Really my expectations for it were not that it was gonna be a big commercial hit. I thought it was gonna be something more kind of indie feeling because it was about four women, sex from a female point of view, and and it was just gonna be sort of like a, a smart um, 
New York-based R-rated comedy. And I'd also wanted to do a comedy, and I hadn't, I, I'd wanted to do, write a comedy on television for a while, but I didn't want to do a sitcom. And so all the network shows were sitcoms, and I'm really not a sitcom writer, and I, I wanted to do something that felt like uh, a, a comedic film every week. And so that was sort of the genesis of bringing it to HBO. And um, thinking about it like sort of an independent film for TV. So it, you started in one way. It's it's really become. I mean, obviously, you know, the series and then and the characters and the films um, taken on a, a life of its own. It's become such an important part of pop culture. In fact, in, do, in doing some googling, there there are all these. Um, um, like I, I am old, there are all these, you know, what you can really learn from your, from sex in the city about your relationship, which seems really dangerous to me, but like. Completely, so, you know. completely dangerous. You can learn, uh, you know, have fun watching the show, but don't, uh, don't sort right, of like so, make it your Bible for living your life. But, but it really has <laughs> been, become such a part of pop culture. I mean, I just think about it, like sometimes I think even the way like women started dressing at work and the drinks we drank, I mean, like the Cosmo right. came out of Sex and the right. City. Well, the Cosmo was the drink of, of that time, you know, in, uh, of that year in New York when Sex City started, the Cosmopolitan was like the drink. And I, I don't know really, I can't really, Think about a drink that feel that that so sort of captured the moment today. The way the Cosmopolitan in New York just was, it was everywhere. Um, so, so how do you, what do you think the legacy of that show is, both here and around the country? And then talk a little bit about the films and if those, how have you felt about them, you know, relative to the series? Uh, you know, I feel like the legacy of the show is I, 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 I am always gratified when I hear people say that it meant, so, that especially women, that it meant something to them that's a, that it's empowering. And it was meant to be empowering. And I feel like it was from the beginning always, you know, I always thought of it as giving, giving women um, a voice and just, I knew women like that. So it didn't feel like, you know, I, I, I think it was just the first show that really, you got to really hear women speak that way. I certainly had, new, had female friends that like, like, swore like sailors and were much more provocative than my, you know, than my male friends. I mean, I kind of feel like women are just, that I knew were, and still know, are much more sort of out there about what they think and how they feel. That's why I love writing female characters, because I feel like they just say whatever is on their mind. And yeah, I mean, I, the fact that the show means something, I mean, I think the, I, I feel like the common threat to all the shows I've done is the idea that from 90210 to Melrose Place, Sex in the City, is that the characters really kind of create this family among themselves. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and also Sex in the City, I think is really, is really special in the, in the uh, because of the idea that um, you don't, I think the characters weren't really defining themselves by getting married. That wasn't their end game. Even though some of them did, it wasn't from the beginning of the series, it was always like they had each other, they, their lives were lived really joyfully and independently and they weren't sort of like, um, it wasn't sort of like, you know, how to marry a millionaire and like mm -hmm. they were just out there like kind of looking for men. They, they had relationships, they, but the men were being objectified. And I think right. that's the other thing that basically turned that sort of paradigm on its head. I feel like women uh, had always been objectified, you know, forever in, film, in, in entertainment. And in this case, you know, the men didn't even have names. They that's were just completely right. objectified. Right, Mr. Big. Okay, now we'll talk about Younger, and then we've got some other stuff to talk about as well. Um, so you're now into the fifth season. Um, tell us about the idea for the show, and, and you know, with that, no spoilers, but sort of where it's heading in, in the new season, and, and, you know, where you've gone in the first few seasons. Four seasons, I guess. The show is based on a book, 
And the book was written a number of years ago, but it had the premise, I, I, I really love the premise of this woman who was like in her early 40s, daughter in high school who recently divorced and wanted to uh, go, get, go back to work in publishing. And she basically had this 12-year hiatus. She'd raised her, ki she'd raised her daughter. And she, she couldn't get hired because she'd just been like kind of out of the game for so long. And I knew, and at the, especially then, um, a lot of, um, over the years, a lot of female friends of mine who had left whatever professional, professional jobs they had to raise kids and then wanted to go back to work mm -hmm. and found that really impossible. So I thought the, the idea of this, what this woman sort of, the, the lengths she went to, to sort of like get a job, any job, I, I thought would be relatable. And, and I think at its heart, Younger's really a show about um, wanting to stay engaged in life, in work, and how important work is to one's life. Um, but the difference between the book was written and now is that this whole rise of millennial culture. Mm -hmm. And so it was, the show has become very much an exploration of the generations, um, generation, you know, um, I guess, 40-something generation and that, that did not grow up with social media and the 20-something generation that is sort of like just elevated to this, you know, high level of um, achievement and, and they're basically running the world because they know how to use Instagram. Mm -hmm. And that's the world that this um, woman finds herself in and has to, you know, has to pretend, has to really catch up. And so it's, uh, that generation gap is very much what the show's about and exploring the whole millennial culture, which has been a blast because it forces me to get in there and think about it also. You're obviously on a cable channel now and the streaming services. Are these streaming services, have these streaming services changed the way you think about the business? And you know, has binge watching changed the way you think about the business when you write? Or are you still just writing for like, you know, creativity and success and to entertain? So what, what do you think about the business of television? I mean, I do think the binge watching has changed the way I think about writing. Certainly Younger is written to be as a, you know, quote, bingeable show. It's written as every episode and with a tiny bit of a cliffhanger, a little bit of something that's sort of like get, you know, bring you into the next episode. So you kind of, it's got hopefully like an addictive quality mm -hmm. to the storytelling. And I, you know, I did think, you know, going in and writing the show and conceiving the show that it would be, it would be streamed and it would have a life as a, you know, on a streaming service. So it works both, so it works in both instances. It's, it's sort of, a big plus. So do you think I mean, your next show, will it be written you know, the same way so you can watch it weekly? Or do you think we're evolving to this like only, you know, only binging? I don't know. I feel like, yes, I do feel like people like, I, I do think that there's this appetite to binge shows. I'm, it, it amazes me that people will, I think it, it, it's, as a, it's a great time to be a writer mm -hmm. because I think that there's so much, there's an appetite for so much material right now. I think it's a time when you can really take chances. We are really thankful that you spent an hour with us today. Thank you. Thanks. This podcast was recorded on June 7th, 2018. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, 
as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.